You are the executive director of New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty. I want to make sure we got that out for you. Sure, and, uh, absolutely. With, i got to make sure that, uh, for my audience, again, we are speaking to David Kaczynski. He is the brother of Ted Kaczynski, uh, unfortunately better known as the Unabomber. Now, David, you were saying growing up with him, you, you idolized your brother. You're seven years younger. Uh, turned him into the FBI after reading the uh, manifesto that was released by the Washington Post in 1995. Uh, he and his wife read it and came to the conclusion that it was Ted. And they turned him into the FBI. And we'll get a little further in that. Gary Wright will also have one. He and David are best friends. Uh, believe it or not, uh, Gary was the 12th victim. He uh, bombed by Ted Kaczynski on uh, February 20th, 1987, as he left, as he left his office. Uh, so we're going to kind of roll right into this. We're going to find out a lot about uh, Gary Wright and a lot about David Kaczynski today and a lot about uh, Ted Kaczynski. David is an uh, activist against the uh, death penalty. Uh, he is in charge as the executor, I'm sorry, the executive up in New York uh, for, the, so, for the organization. And we're going to talk a little bit about him as well. Are we some problems, JT, still? Yeah. Oh, we got him? Yep. David. Okay, David. Um, we're going to kind of go further, you know, kind of move forward here without Gary. Let's talk a little bit about your brother uh, growing up. What, what, what was it like when he was, uh, when he was growing up as a, a child going into his teens? Yeah, you know, Ted was seven and a half years older, so, you know, my perspective was very much the perspective of a younger brother, um, and I looked up to Ted. I adored him. Um, I would have to say he was probably pretty different than most people. He was not a very social person. He was highly intellectual. He was always reading. He was always kind of working on things, um, but he was a good big brother. Um, I remember once when I was about three years old, our family had moved from this inner-city neighborhood of Chicago out to a home in the suburbs. It was our first house, and uh, I was having a ball because it was the first time I had a, a little backyard that I could play in, and I was meeting new friends out in the community. I had a kind of frustration of trying to get back inside the house, though, because the, as, a, as a three-year-old, I was so short, I couldn't reach the doorknob to open the screen door, and it was very frustrating for me for a couple of weeks. I would be out there periodically you know, asking for for help to be led inside the house until one day Ted, who was, I guess, about 11 years old at that point, came out and uh, always a very ingenious person. He'd taken a spool of thread from Mom's sewing kit, a hammer and nail from Dad's tool kit, and um, he removed the thread from the spool, lined up this wooden spool on the wooden screen door, hammered it on there, and, and then said, Dave, see if this works. And all of a sudden I realized he'd, you know, he'd made this little makeshift door handle for me. Um, so my memories of Ted, you know, sort of uh, are imbued with a kind of fondness. I mean, he was a good and very protective big brother to me. When did, when did your family or friends start seeing differences in him in his teens? He was, he is an extremely intelligent man. Uh, obviously, you know, mathematics are his thing. When did things start kind of changing for him on a on a personal level with inside his own mind? Yeah, what well, you know, intelligence is an understatement with Ted. At one time, I think when he was 13 years old, um, the school guidance counselor gave him an IQ test, and the, the number she got, came up with was 165. And typically, you think of genius as 140, and so Ted was even above that. Um, on the other hand, I, I do remember maybe when I was about seven years old or so, um, asking our mom, uh, Mom, what's wrong with Ted? And 
I remember her first being, you know, like, well, what do you mean? What's wrong? Nothing's wrong with your brother. What are you talking about, Dave? And I said, well, you know, he doesn't have any friends. He always spends time by himself. And uh, my mom actually kind of sat me down and said she wanted to tell me something that might help me understand my brother a little bit better. And this is this is a story, really, that has, I think, uh, sort of uh, guided my mother's fears and worries about Ted since he was pretty young. Um, she told me that when he was a little baby, about nine months old, he had to be hospitalized um, for some kind of an allergic reaction, was in the hospital for, I think, about 10 days or so. Um, and my mother, mother always kind of felt uh, a little bit badly about the hospital because in those days they really didn't encourage parents of an infant to visit. They thought, well, this is a job for the doctors and nurses. So visiting was really just two times a week, I think, for two hours. And Mom said that when they finally brought little Teddy home from the hospital, he was, like, different. Like, he didn't make eye contact. He um, didn't smile anymore. It took a long time to get him sort of to acknowledge the existence of other people again. And Mom said to me, you know, Dave, don't ever abandon your brother because you have to understand that's he probably doesn't remember this hospital trauma, but being abandoned is, is what he fears the most. And uh, Mom has always kind of clung to that notion that something happened to Teddy during that stay in the hospital. Um, I don't know. Uh, a little bit later, I, I remember asking Dad, you know, maybe I was a young adolescent, you know, what's wrong with Ted? How come he doesn't have friends like I do? And you know, my dad was, I think, taking a much more you know, hopeful view that a parent would would have. He said, well, you know, Dave, your brother's really smart, um, but when he goes to college, when he meets other smart people, he'll he'll have more in common with them. He'll get along. You see, Ted will find himself. It, he'll it just might take him a little longer. Yeah, he yeah. basically thought, you know, they were hoping that he'd assimilate. Real quick, David. Gary, I got you on the line? Yes, sir. There we go. I got them both now. <laughs> Hi, Gary. Hey, this, how are you, Dave? Guys, I'll tell you, this great. has been, what, 18 months in the making trying to get this interview? Yeah. <laughs> Most of it my fault. Actually, all of it my fault because uh, <laughs> things now, you know, changed. That's just a sign of the times, John. Going to roll right back in and give, uh, give Gary right now his introduction. Gary is a close friend of uh, David Kaczynski, which we'll get into a little bit later. Gary was the 12th victim attacked by David uh, by Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. Um, Gary, r- real quick, what, what was your injuries, uh, if any? I'm trying to remember. Um, the well, there were uh, a variety of injuries. You know, most consistent with uh, shrapnel wounds. Um, the uh, the major injury was probably the uh, uh, ulnar nerve in my left arm was severed, and so you know a little bit of paralysis there. But you get a, you know get by with that. Um, there was about 200 pieces of shrapnel um, in my legs and uh, up in my arms and a nail that went through my uh, chin and through my lips. And uh, My eyesight apparently, or apparently was saved because I was wearing sunglasses that day. So um, all in all, you know, things turned out pretty well um, considering the, the size of the explosion. So, most yeah. laid-back person I ever met. I got <laughs> I've talked to Gary several times over the last 18 months, the most laid-back person. Gary, your secretary is the one who got the only description of uh, Ted, correct? She, yes, uh-huh. And uh, I believe you told me after that she was very fearful for, um, for her own life. I believe the FBI had to come in and uh, do some bodyguard work? Yeah, they did. They, uh, she had just been married, and they moved into their home for almost two months. And so I, I kid with her now and say, man, what a honeymoon. 
you know, they uh, they basically were taken to and from work um, for almost two months. Well, that's a long time. Yeah. That's a long time to be kind of cooped up like that. Uh, David. Could you give us a little background of Ted's college education? It's a very, very impressive resume, uh, again, with working with mathematics and so forth. Where did he start his education, and where did it end up at? Well, he graduated high school at the age of 15, believe it or not, two years early. He got accepted to Harvard University, actually got a, an academic scholarship to attend, uh, spent four years in Harvard, majored in mathematics, uh, then was accepted at a graduate school at the University of Michigan, another pretty elite school. Um, he got his master's and his Ph.D. there, and while he was at Michigan still a student, he had solved some uh, mathematical problems that uh, no one had been able to solve before. In fact, uh, you know, there was some, some suggestion there were, were only a few people in the world at that point, a few uh, mathematicians who could understand his work, and he'd published original papers, and um, that track record of success got him a tenure track uh, professor's position at the uh, University of California at Berkeley, again, another elite institution. So um, although socially Ted was struggling, perhaps emotionally he was struggling academically, he was like a comet, you know, he was on a rising path. And, and uh, then after about three years at Berkeley, he abruptly quit his job announced to our family that he decided that technology was um, not a positive but a negative for humanity and that uh, he didn't want to contribute to it through his work in mathematics. And that's when he uh, basically moved to Montana. David, did he, did he ever have a girlfriend, any kind of uh, relationship outside of the family? You know, I think he briefly had a girlfriend a couple of dates near the end of his senior year in high school. I never recall a girlfriend after that. Um, some years later, and, and maybe this was my first inclination that something was really seriously wrong with Ted, he had come from Montana to live with us, uh, with his parents, where I was living at the time, too, in the Chicago area, and got a job at the factory where our father worked and where I also worked, and began dating a supervisor there, and very, very nice woman. Um, you know, they went on a few dates. She just told him one day, it's, I don't think it's going to really work out, Ted. You know, we can be friends. And at that point, Ted really couldn't handle it. He began posting, like, limericks, poems that were unflattering about her. And, of course, I realized what was going on. I confronted him, and actually I was in a position where I had to uh, tell him, look, you, you stop or I, I'm going to have to let, you know, fire you. Okay. I was pretty mad about it, and and it, it ended up that he didn't stop, and so I, I fired him, and it was kind of a first real major crisis that I was aware of in Ted's life. Could you see other changes happening? I, I Back up for a second here. He was, Ted was uh, diagnosed, I believe, paranoid schizophrenic uh, prior to the trial. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that one. That's, that's true. Okay. Yes. Did you see him start slipping away from reality at that point? You know what was hard? He'd go through these episodes like it, you couldn't reason with him, you couldn't talk with him. On some subjects, he couldn't be rational. For instance, on the subject of technology, it was he had only one way of looking at things. And as bright as he was, of course, he could manufacture all kinds of support for his point of view. Um, 
I began to feel actually in the late 70s, early 1980s that, 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 that something was very odd with Ted. He began writing letters to our parents in which he accused them of being really bad parents, of never having loved him, of having pushed him academically, you know, in order to, you know, for their own satisfaction, gratification. And to me, these accusations were totally out of line with reality. I mean, uh, our parents were kind and loving. It was always the kids' happiness first, and it, it just didn't make sense to me. And at first, I remember confronting Ted and you know, saying, gee, you, you should apologize. You know, I, I understand maybe you lost your temper or something bothered you, but, you know, you've really deeply hurt Mom and Dad. And, you know, over a series of exchanged letters, I began to realize that, you know, this wasn't just Ted losing his temper. He had this fixed, unshakable belief that our parents had been abusive parents, and it was just not in line with reality. Um, you know, at that time, I really wasn't thinking, hey, he's crazy. <laughs> uh, he's schizophrenic. He's mentally yeah. ill. I'm thinking, wow, he's being really stubborn. Yeah. You know, there's a part of Ted I just can't get through to. It was, uh, and I tried for a number of years. Uh, but I think that was my first real awakening, that, that he was somehow disconnected from reality as I knew it. Hmm. You're listening to an inside look at mental health. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today I have on David Kaczynski. He is the brother of Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. We have Gary Wright on, who was the 12th victim on February 20th, 1987 in uh, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. And Gary and David are actually pretty close friends. There was an article done on them last year in People Magazine. If you get a chance, Google that on the Internet. It's a, it's a very interesting article you'll, you'll actually come away feeling very positive about humanity at least that's what i came away with gary how does it feel for you when you kind of hear the story again as we're getting beginning the process here how do you feel does it bring you back to that day um maybe not so much the day but it, it brings me back to a lot of subsequent conversations that david and i have had um i think one of the real um benefits if you will with the type of relationship that David and I have is as a victim many times you don't learn the idiosyncrasies and the background behind what's gone on with a family or that person that's attacked you very easily. I, I don't mean, think those people want to, Gary. It, it, you know, it, it could be that and it could be that that's my way of um, dealing with it and healing and things like that. My father was a, a highway patrolman and so you know I've always been fascinated with the law side of things anyway but um, you know, there's a little bit of rationale at times that I can put to things when I get a little more information. And when you go through, uh, I mean, the court process in, at any level, I mean, civil all the way up to criminal is uh, tough most of the time. I mean, sometimes it's, it's not, but for the most part, I think that people would agree with that. And um, you're only exposed to certain sides of a story um, when you are in the middle of a case. And the prosecution's job is to paint a picture, and the defense's job is to paint a picture. And when you're in my shoes, you don't get much of an opportunity to hear uh, the defense side uh, much at all, uh, let alone the data that they've seen. So the relationship, as I hear it, puts into place timeline, um, the thought pattern that perhaps, you know, you saw a person who was an uh, incredibly brilliant man, obviously, yes. um, break down. And with paranoid schizophrenia being something that typically strikes in the 20s, um, you have some sense of reasoning behind it. So 
it just further adds uh, information to my ability to, I guess, heal, if you will, mm-hmm. or put some sort of sense of reason behind uh, the act, which seemed fairly uh, senseless and inhumane and uh, you know, a lot of wondering as to where he was coming from and why he went about things the way he did in attacking people for his particular cause. Well, that was my next question going in for David. Now, David, why, why technology, and why did he pick, pick the people that he picked? Were they, obviously, they weren't random to some degree, but why these specific people? There are definitely other individuals or companies out there that deal in really high-tech stuff like you know, GE, Cisco, Northrow, places like that where maybe his feelings should have been more directed uh, in a kind of a weird way. Yeah, you know, apparently, as far as I can tell, based on what I learned from my interactions with the FBI and and also with the Ted's defense lawyers, was that uh, he seemed to kind of pick his targets um, at random, but simply because they were some way related to technology when he used to deliver his bombs in person, like the bomb he delivered to Gary's um, company, um, he was targeting it not because Gary worked there, but because um, it was a computer, it was related to the computer industry. Um, Later on, apparently, he read articles in newspapers and would begin to form, uh, you know, some sort of uh, interpretation about somebody whose name he read in an article and uh, begin to shape them as a kind of target, as someone responsible for just about all the ills of the humanity. I, you know, I think one thing, there's there's a strong temptation, believe me, I've, I've felt it all my life to try to understand my brother, so we try to reason and make this logical and rational. And I think we always have to remind ourselves that at some point there's a kind of disconnection from reality here. The, it's because the rational process has been interrupted by mental illness that we can't really put all the pieces together and, and, and get those answers that we, we, we crave. You know, why, why, why did he do this? Ultimately, I, you know, I think the most obvious answer is because he was delusional. He was very, very ill. Well, it's, it's interesting, David, because they, obviously he was delusional. He was slipping into a paranoid schizophrenic state, and he was kind of going deeper and deeper into it. But the FBI also said that um, he would give misclues to throw off the authorities. Now, I guess my question would be, was he competent enough to be doing something like that? I guess it came up in the trial. How do you kind of explain that? He, he, he's obviously paranoid schizophrenic at the time, but he's kind of trying to cover it up. Do you think that's all part of the same ball of wax? I, I actually do think it is. You know, we, we sort of think, well, if somebody's really smart, if they're really clever, they can't be mentally ill. And in fact, many people who are seriously mentally ill have very high IQs, are very bright, are very high functioning in, in some cognitive areas. Um, you know, this was, to the best of my knowledge, the longest running, most expensive criminal investigation in the history of the FBI in part because my brother was so clever and took such pains to cover his tracks. I don't think that diminishes from the fact that there is um, something profoundly irrational. There is a disease underlying um, this, um, you know, this, this, this activity that can only be explained as a, as a symptom of mental illness. Now, when... Um 
when Ted decided to go out to Montana, Lincoln, Montana, and started living in a cabin, no running water, no electricity, uh, what did your family think? What was your reaction at first? You know, my first reaction as, as uh, like a college student was, hey, right on, great. You know, it was the 60s. Uh, I think Time Magazine had articles about people dropping out of society, going back to the land. You know, I'd always thought of my brother as a kind of very sort of principled person, and I thought, well, that's cool, you know. Ted's doing what he wants to do, not what anybody else would expect. And uh, so I, I sort of framed it within a sort of the countercultural mood of the country at the time. Um, Mom and Dad, I think, were um, somewhat worried, and I remember Mom saying to me, you know, Dave, you know, I'm, I'm afraid he's not doing this because he really wants to. I'm afraid he just can't cope. He just can't cope. And he's he's running away from, you know, the, the social interactions, the, the civilization that he can't cope with. And uh, obviously, I think over time, we would have to agree that, you know, mom was right on. She was right. And I was just like a young kid who was adoring his older brother. David, you're not supposed to see that as a kid. <laughs> I, I don't think you're supposed to see that. That's your older brother. You're, yeah. You look up to him. Like you said, it's the 60s. He's kind of tuning in, dropping out. You know, he's, it looks appealing. Yeah, it looks kind of exciting cool. at the times. Why do you think he picked Montana? Well, actually, you know, it, it's kind of funny. My, I, I always had this sense, and in conversations with my mother, she always had the sense that, you know, Ted, the, the family was the only place where Ted truly felt safe when he was kind of out on his own, away at college. He never felt safe. He'd lock himself up in his room. He wouldn't come out. He wouldn't interact with people. And I had actually moved to, to Montana earlier. I had graduated from college. I actually got a job at a um, blue-collar job up at a smelter in Montana because I wanted to be closer to nature. Um, Ted at first tried to homestead some land in Canada. He had that application denied. They probably thought he was a draft dodger or something because this was the height of Vietnam. So he ended up following me to Montana about a year later, and uh, he then posed the idea that, you know, hey, let's buy some land. You know, I'll build my cabin. Maybe someday you'll build a cabin too, and we'll, you know, we'll be together. And, and I felt good in a way. I felt it was like, yeah, my brother came here because of me, really, because he you know, has an attachment to his family that's very strong. We're going to roll up this segment real quick, but I want to ask I want to ask Gary a question. Now, Gary, through your healing process, through how you've handled this, which, again, to me is just incredible, um, have you gone out to see the cabin? Have you done anything to, to kind of feel a little bit closer to it, to make peace with yourself in that way? No, I haven't seen the cabin. I know that it's with the uh, uh, tour that the FBI has out right now of, I believe, their top 100 cases. I think it's in Washington, D.C. right now. So I haven't seen the cabin um, or the land or anything like that. But, I mean, there's been other things that have been uh, helpful, I guess. I mean, um, when I've gone back to visit uh, David and his mom and, and his wife, Linda, you know, I've seen the family pictures. Um, it helps you to understand that they were normal family, you know, just uh, a group of uh, folks just trying to make a living like the rest of us. And um, so the the things that I've been able to interact with, the talking with Dave's mom, um, really close to Wanda, um, and David and Linda, and meeting some of their friends, I think that that's been probably the biggest uh, healing factor. 
ability to get close because as they become more and more comfortable, I mean, our relationship has taken time to develop. Um, and like any relationship, the more comfortable you get, the more stories you share. And, you know, we're fairly comfortable sharing intimate details about our lives. Um, we speak fairly often and, um, you know, about deep subjects. So I think that that in itself is probably as helpful um, as anything to, to bring closure. And um, closure is a funny word in that there never really is closure, but um, as close to closure as you can get or the ability to move on. Um, I think that has been an important piece of it. you got 25 seconds real quick, Gary, before we take a break here. You've obviously been able to separate the, the man from the mental illness. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I mean, um, I think I can view him as a six-year-old, and that's something that came to me through this feeling process and say at six years old, you aren't making plans to go out and injure people, and your biggest problem is probably, you know, what time am I going to be on the playground? And to have a mind change from a six-year-old um, to a point that it's confused and scared and frightened and not understanding um, is a big leap. Guys, we're right back in a few minutes. You listen to an inside look at mental health today. My guest is David Kaczynski, the brother of Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unibomber. Gary Wright, one of the victims. They are very close friends. Be back in a few moments. Welcome back to an inside look at mental health. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guests are David Kaczynski. He is the brother of Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. Gary Wright, victim number 12, who is all, who is close friends with uh, David. And we're doing a, a kind of an in-depth interview here. We're, we're going through uh, Ted Kaczynski's life as David is, is giving it to us. And we're going to lead on as we go deeper into the friendship between David and Gary. Uh, I do want to say that David is the executive director of New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty. Uh, Gary, you're still working in technical sales now in California? Yeah, I am. Uh-huh. That's I, right. Biopharmaceutical sales. That's right. We were talking about that last week. Some of the work I do kind of kind of yeah, rolls yeah. with each other on that one. Yes. David, um, did you ever visit uh, Ted when he was in Montana? Did you have any contact with him where he just basically secluded himself from everybody? You know, in the early days, it seemed like he was fairly happy. I remember uh, when we bought the land together, I was still working at the smelter, so I'd only come up on weekends or days off. And um, I remember one weekend I was coming to expecting to help my brother build his cabin, and he'd built the whole thing by himself, you know, with with an A-frame top. I mean, he was was a very ingenious guy. Um, I... uh, left Montana about two years after that to take a teaching job in the Midwest, and um, I don't know if, you know, it's it, in, in some sense, Ted and I wrote each other a lot of letters. We didn't visit all that often. I probably saw him four or five more times until the last time I saw him was in 1986. Um, at that point, I was living in Texas, and I remember I was on a visit home to Chicago, and uh, as I was leaving, Mom said, uh, Dave, you know, any chance you could stop off in Montana on your way back to Texas <laughs> to check in on Ted? And I guess Mom's sense of geography was a little skewed. You know, <laughs> uh, t- Montana isn't exactly on a direct line to Texas from Chicago. But um, I ended up going out there. We spent about 10 days together. We did some backpacking together. And I guess I had mixed feelings. Um, if anything, there were like more subjects that we, I find I just couldn't talk about with Ted because they upset him. Uh, 
technology being one, mom and dad being another. Um, but overall, um, I thought, well, he's not hurting anybody. He's found his niche in life. Um, you know, he seems to be basically okay. I remember as I was leaving, I invited him to come down to Texas with me. I, I said, you know, look, Ted, the Montana winters are pretty brutal. You know, down in the desert in Texas where I live, you know, there's a lot of open country, a lot of trails to hike, you know, fun place to be in the winter. Why don't you come down with me? And Ted thought about it, and then at the last minute he said, no, he he, he had too much to do. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, Ted, what do you have to do? You're in this cabin by yourself. And I thought, I guess at the time that he was just making an excuse, I really didn't realize that he had this whole other... Um, avocation and in fact i think it was not too many months after that that uh, gary actually was almost killed by one of ted's bombs well, i was going to ask that coming why was there did the fbi ever mention why there was such a at times a long time frame between uh incidents Is that um, I, i'm sorry go ahead gary what do you think uh, yeah yeah i mean the if you look at it, it was pretty regular up until um the bomb that i received and the uh indication that they gave, and it seems to make sense, is it was the first time that he had ever been seen. Um, Prior to that, they didn't know if they were looking for male, female, what race, um, no physical description. And it was the last time that a a bomb was physically placed at a location. Um, The remaining bombs were were mailed um, or shipped in some fashion. And so the timeline between that, I would assume, was probably fear more than anything. Uh, of being caught, um, there was the the physical description put out there, and um, and all, people were more cognizant. Finally, um, to be honest, when I got when I received my bomb and and realized it was from a serial bomber, I was kind of shocked that there was less information about this going on um, around the country than I would have realized because I, I feel like I'm a pretty well-read guy, you know, read the newspapers every day, magazines, whatever, and I had never heard anything about it. And so by the time it came around to my bombing, it had been going on for quite a number of years, and for it to be as big of a case as it was, I was surprised there wasn't more information out there. Gary, i got to agree with you on that one because uh, I'm an avid reader. Now, when, unfortunately, your bomb went off with you, I was a senior in high school, yeah. and I, I, I'm, I've been reading all my life. I love to read newspapers, what have you. I remember actually reading a blip of the article concerning you, but it wasn't like what it would be now today, I think. Uh, right, right. Yeah, I think um, the uh, the information we can get now is so, so much more instantaneous um, via the Internet and things like that, um, that you know maybe people just weren't able to put the pieces together as readily um, or something like that. But yeah, I was kind of surprised. I thought maybe there'd be um, perhaps... Uh, ads on the evening news or something like that asking for help, but there wasn't anything at the time. And this was pre-shows uh, like America's Most Wanted and things like that, which came shortly after. David, the, uh, I kind of explain this here, the manifesto, which eventually got your brother caught because you and your wife read it and turned him into the FBI, how long do you think he was working on that in the cabin? Was that something he'd been working on, say, since the beginning of the bombings, or something he started to work on, say, after Gary's situation? Um, I think the set of ideas, whether that actual manuscript had been started earlier, I really wouldn't know. 
but I think the ideas had been bouncing around and you know had a grip on Ted really for any number of years, um, at least 20 years. Uh, I think when we first went to the FBI, we first contacted them, um, they were somewhat blasé about it. The, you know, they were getting 20,000 calls a month from people who thought they knew who the Unabomber was, and and we were just another one of those calls. We didn't have any concrete evidence. Um, but it so happened that, that around that time, my father, my um, mother fell ill, and I, and I had to fly back to Chicago, and she was in the hospital, and, you know, though feeling kind of guilty about it, I did some snooping in her house, and I found um, an essay that I had vaguely remembered that Ted had sent to the family back in the early 70s, and it did bear a resemblance, um, fairly striking resemblance to passages in the manifesto. So um, when I sent that essay to the FBI, all of a sudden, some I, I think there was actually somebody in the um, Unabom Task Force who was very into the, the psychological profiling piece, and they had an immediate sense upon reading that manuscript that uh, they had their guy. Well, it's interesting, going back to the manifesto, it was released by the Washington Post, I believe, in September of 1995. I remember it coming out. I remember scanning it. I didn't read it in depth. But for some reason, you and your wife did. I believe your wife did first, if I'm correct, and then she told you to read it, and you both came to the same conclusion. It sounded like Ted. What was it like to read this and start to realize, hey, this is my brother? Well, actually, Linda's role in here is, is even bigger than that. She had begun, I think, in the late summer, late August of, of 1995, uh, about a month and a half before the manifesto was published. To, to you know, One day she sat me down and said, Dave, you know, I'm sorry, to, don't get angry at me, but has it ever occurred to you just possibly your brother could be the Unabomber? And she mentioned some coincidences, Chicago, um, Northern California, places where bombs had been uh, detonated. And uh, then finally the, the manifesto had been, um, there was news of the manifesto in the media, but it hadn't been published yet. Um, but the news said that it was an anti-technology piece. So she knew my brother's phobia about technology. And uh, you know, I was pretty adamant that Ted was had never been violent. You know, he didn't fit any sort of profile of a sociopath. I mean, he, he was, you know, he didn't torture animals as a little kid. I, I knew he had some mental problems, but I didn't think they could change him that dramatically. Um, I remember we actually, you know, when the manifesto came out, I tried to get copies of it, was unable to find a copy here of the Washington Post up in upstate New York. But uh, about a week later, Linda kind of dragged me to the library at her college. She's a college professor and sat me down in front of the internet. And um, actually the first time in my life I was ever on the internet, ironically, reading the Unabomber's Manifesto. And when I started reading it, I was all set to turn to my wife and say, look how silly you've been. I know how Ted writes. I know how he thinks this isn't him. And instead I got a real, real sinking feeling. Now, that manifesto was 78 pages long, and I wouldn't tell you that when I finished it, I was anywhere close to being sure that mm -hmm. Ted was the author, but I had enough of a doubt to realize that we had to look into this more. Well, you and your wife, Linda, uh, weren't really sure what to do, if I'm correct, at the moment. You actually thought about going out to the cabin yourself and, and confronting Ted, if I'm you correct. Know, yeah, actually, you know, there came a day... Um, you know, we were sitting up almost every night, reading the manifesto, combing through some of my brother's old letters. He'd written me lots of letters 
which I'd saved over the years. And I remember waking up one morning and, you know, finally saying, you know, and I think there might be a 50-50 chance. And, of course, at that point, you know, she's forced to look at this through my eyes because I know Ted, she really doesn't. And she is, at this moment, very upset, and then we begin struggling. Okay, what do, what do we do? What does this ask of us? And uh, I remember the next morning I proposed the idea, look, I've got to go out to Montana to see him. Uh, she said, what are you going to ask him if he's the Unabomber and expect an honest answer? And I said, no, you know, I just feel if I'm if I'm there, if I'm in his presence, I'll, I'll have a, you know, I'll know one way or another. Um, uh, we never really worked it out. I mean, Linda was very afraid. She knew that Ted had weapons. Uh, I said, look, I'm sure Ted loves me. He wouldn't hurt me. And she said, look, David, a month ago you were sure he would never hurt anybody. Now you're not so sure. The truth is we really don't know what he's capable of. But as a compromise, I, we, we kind of hit on a, a idea that I would write him a letter, ask him if I could come to visit. I wouldn't say anything about our suspicions, but just try to repair the relationship as best I could and see if he would allow me to visit. And a couple weeks later, I got a letter back from him that was, well, it was cold, but it was more than cold. It was very bizarre. And I I think on reading that letter, I really felt, my God, my brother's really gone over the edge, you know. Um, You know, this is not something I can handle. We you know, this could spin out of control if I went to see him. David, did he, did Ted even have an inkling that his uh, manifesto had been re, uh, released? Did he have any idea, you think? I don't know. I would be surprised if he didn't. I mean, I, I he, he seemed after his bombings to try to find newspapers and find out what had happened, you know. Um, so I would be very surprised if he didn't know that his manifesto had been published. Gary, did you get a chance to uh, ever read the original manifesto? I, I did, mm-hmm. and it, it was one of those documents where it was it was very deep, and it took me uh, quite some time, actually, to get through it, um, because at the time, I think I was dealing with you know all of my own injuries, both uh, physical and mental, and um, taking the time to absorb it and be somewhat uh, introspective and at the same time logical to try and make sense of it was difficult um, in the way that it was written. It, it's a, it was a type of writing that was somewhat difficult for me, mm-hmm. uh, but I did take the time, and I had a, uh, a copy of the Post. I went down to a uh, Barnes & Noble and picked it up when I heard that it was going to be published, because at the time, you know, there was a huge debate on whether it should be published or I not. remember that. And they thought it might actually uh, perpetuate the problem, giving uh, publicity to it. Yeah, and and actually, in some ways, supporting terrorism yes. and giving into it. So yes, it, there was a, a fairly big, heavy discussion on that for a number of weeks before it came out. But uh, yeah, I, I did get a chance to read it. David, you decided. You and your wife decided. Uh, you and Linda decided to go to the FBI. Now we've talked before off the air about this. You were the FBI had made some promises to you that they did not keep when you told them that it was your brother Ted who was the Unabomber. Could you elaborate a little bit there? Yeah, I guess the the most important promise that had been broken was uh, the promise that um, basically I was told actually in writing that no one would ever know uh, that I had turned in my own brother, that I would be treated as a confidential informant. 
And uh, another promise was that we would, if Ted were to be arrested, we would get some advance notice, maybe not a lot, but we'd get some advance notice to prepare ourselves. Um, As it turned out, um, you know, neither promise was kept. Uh, There was some kind of a leak within, I mean, I think they had something like 125 agents working on this. And then, you know, once there was movement, uh, obviously signals going up the chain of command in the Justice Department. Um, so we don't know who leaked, created that leak, but it was certainly painful to us. And, and I might add, it really did place um, the lives of law enforcement at risk. I think it would have they would have preferred to wait for Ted to come out of his cabin to make one of his you know quarterly trips to the grocery store or something, yeah. and instead they uh, you know they had to try to lure him out of his cabin, not knowing if he'd come out with a gun, not knowing if the cabin was wired with bombs. So. Fortunately, uh, it all ended for the best. Um, unfortunately, we were kind of hung out to dry. Um, you know, the media mobbed our house, and we were, you know, sort of surrounded by ten days by people with cameras and notepads, and they all wanted to get, you know, didn't want to miss the scoop if if one of us were to come out of the house and begin talking. And I got to tell you, I would have rather walked through fire than to walk into that bank of cameras. We I were in shock. That. I can yeah. understand that. You're in shock. Your brother has just been found to be the Unabomber, a homegrown American terrorist. You've, you've, you're the one that's turned him in, which had to be really hard on you emotionally. I, I'd have to believe you know what he's done is wrong. You know what he's done is horrific, but it's still your brother. How did that turn inside of you? You know, it's like... I saw my brother as a protector when I was young, and, you know, my mom had always said, you know, Dave, never abandon your brother, and here's the loneliest guy in the world. Not trying to create sympathy for him, just saying he didn't have a friend in the world outside of his family, and and, uh, here I'm the one who's got to do this really, really difficult thing. On the other hand, you know, Linda and I had to ask ourselves, what if we turn our way and don't do anything and we wake up some morning and realize that some other innocent person has been killed because we had failed to act would 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 have blood on our hands and to to us that was just too chilling of a thought you know we we had to do what we believed was necessary to save lives and of course after ted's arrest we we worked very hard to try to get him spared from the death penalty i was going to ask you that the court proceedings uh we'll move quickly into that part of it uh I believe Ted pled guilty to everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was he was he found competent to actually plead guilty to to all charges? You know, he, there actually was a competency hearing while he was um, standing trial. Uh, he attempted suicide, or at least made a suicidal gesture in his cell. Um, that sort of empowered the judge to order a competency evaluation. Um, the standard of competency is pretty low. In other words, uh, you can be very, very mentally ill, but still be competent to stand trial as long as you know what you did and had the ability to restrain yourself. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, one fortunate piece of this competency evaluation is that finally they had an independent psychiatrist, someone working with the Bureau of Prisons, um, not beholden to the prosecution, not beholden to the defense to give uh, a kind of independent analysis. And uh, she actually corroborated the uh, findings of the defense psychiatrist that had paranoid schizophrenia. That definitely helped. Gary, 
I understand that you and uh, David uh, actually finally, uh, for the first time, met during the court proceedings. What was that like for you? Um, well, it, we we had actually met a little bit prior to that. I mean, to the actual hearing. Okay, sorry um, about that. Yeah, it's okay. We uh, David had been back in Sacramento during the uh, the hearings, and when the uh, case ended abruptly with a, a plea and everything. Um, he gave me a call to find out if I'd be interested in, in meeting because he was going to drive back from Sacramento to New York. And uh, we agreed that we'd meet for breakfast. And uh, we, we did. We, uh, we ultimately sat down and, um, you know, nervous. We had never met face-to-face, uh, had only even briefly seen each other probably on television uh, and spoken briefly on the phone a couple of times. Um, we first met when Dave had called my home to apologize on behalf of my family, or be on, on behalf of his family, and uh, he had left a message on my answering machine. We kind of laugh about that right now because my answering machine, my last name is Wright, and it said you breached the Wright house at the wrong time. And he says, <laughs> I, I don't know what I was going to leave on that voice message. <laughs> but say, you know, I'll call you back later. But uh, ultimately he did call back, and um, that, I think, that conversation led up to many others and the ability for us to meet together because um, when he called, I tried to put myself in his position and how difficult that must be to have to pick up that phone. And I just let him know that everybody in their family probably has someone they want to apologize for or on behalf of, and probably uh, the folks in my family would do that for me because there's probably a few things I've done they'd like to apologize for, but uh, not necessarily in the same uh, magnitude, but that I let him know he couldn't carry that and that it wasn't his job to do it, and I'd been dealing with it for a long a long time, and that things would get better. And if he needed to talk ever, he could pick up the phone um, anytime he wanted to, and, and I'd be happy to chat with him. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and I, you know, I think he, he took that away, and he could speak on that, but I think that he took it away, and it, it was maybe the beginning of a seed of what could be or has happened up to this point, but um, I don't think that there's a, a real recipe when you're in the middle of something like this for what you're going to do. I, I don't think that you can sit down and say, well, if this event were to happen to me, what would I do? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes things are placed in your path and you have to make your mind up and choose what's going to be best for you. And uh, in my case, that was what I felt like was the best thing for me. You're listening to an inside look at mental health. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guests are David Kaczynski. He is the brother of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. He also is the one who turned his brother into the FBI. Also speaking with Gary Wright, who was victim number 12. And Gary and David are actually pretty close friends. Um, David, what's prison like for your brother right now? I understand he's in level five maximum security federal prison, I believe, in Illinois. You know, there are probably a lot of people that know that better than I do. We don't get information from Ted. He doesn't answer our letters. Um, We don't actually even get information from the institution where he is because um, he hasn't signed a a, a release for them to talk with his family. Um, As I understand it, it's the most secure prison in America. It's the Federal Supermax in Florence, Colorado. Oh, it's Colorado, sorry. Um, I think he's 23 hours a day in his cell with an uh, optional hour outside to exercise, and uh, I don't know much more than that. 
David, you are the uh, executive director of New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty. I would assume that this is something you got heavily involved in uh, after your brother's trial and he was put to he was put in prison. Give me a little background of what you're doing, what, what, what you're involved in up there in New York. Well, I'll try to make it really quick. You know, I, I think a lot of people have changed their minds on the death penalty, not necessarily on the ultimate merits of, you know, whether the worst of the worst deserve to die, but we've seen more clearly problems with the system. I mean, we, we don't have a system that can extinguish doubt. We found many people on death row were actually proven innocent by DNA standards. Um, you, you, you know, we don't have a system that can guarantee that innocent people won't be executed. I think that's a serious concern. It's never been applied fairly across the board. And now as we look at the resources that are going into the death penalty litigation for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, um, it's millions and millions of dollars. And our organization is actually, um, now that the death penalty has ended in New York, focused much more on crime prevention. So we're collaborating with law enforcement, victims and victims' families, the mental health community, um, uh, to restorative justice practitioners to really find what are best practices. You know, the best alternative for everybody would be to prevent the crime before it happens. And I think we're all aware of some of those root causes of crime, poverty, um, untreated mental illness, untreated trauma. Um, so so we're, we're very, very focused on what we can try to do to make our state and uh, a safer place and hopefully kind of set a pattern pathway for the country to follow as well. I can uh, tell you, um, up until a couple years ago, I was very pro-death penalty, very staunch about it, to be honest with you. My wife uh, had a very profound impact on me on why I shouldn't be this way, and I have to say, over the last several years, I have come to see it your way, David. Mm. I really have. It, yeah, uh, well, you're not alone. It's interesting, yeah. It took... As you grow up, you know, my theory, my philosophy, is that as I was raised, was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the whole nine yards there. But then as you get older, reality sets in. Things aren't always black and white. There's gray here, there's gray there. And you have to look beyond what I think is, is right in front of you and see the things that you don't see. And, and in your case, uh, having you know, been a chance to speak to you over the last several months, I have even reinforced that more, that I am anti-death penalty. You know, one of the things that's really interesting how our criminal justice system sort of, it actually keeps people like Gary and me apart. I mean, it does everything it can in a way to, to prevent us from getting to know each other and see each other's perspectives. And in case you haven't figured it out, I, I know you have, John, but your listeners, too, have really picked up on what an incredibly decent, um, thoughtful human being Gary is. And uh, I've I got to tell you, my life has changed because of Gary's influence and because of his kindness. And it's kind of challenged me to to try to be more understanding and, uh, you know, even on issues I'm passionate about, like the death penalty, I realize reasonable people can disagree, but let's let's talk about it in a, in a rational way. I think that that's that's the path pathway to, to moving forward. I'm going to sound a little strange when I say this, having the opportunity to speak to Gary a lot over the last 18 months or so, uh, his compassion uh, his way of dealing with things and, and how to put this all in perspective has had an impact on me as well. It's had a personal impact in my personal life. I've been able to look and go, geez, if if Gary can do this and, and David can do that and they can meet somewhere here in the middle and become friends, then the things I'm dealing with really are a lot less. 
and it's had that impact. And Gary, I, I, I want to thank you for that. And I want to get your opinion. Where do you think this is all going to go now? Your, your friendship with David, what David's involved in the anti-death penalty situation. Where do you think you guys are going in the future? Well, first of all, let me say thanks to both of you guys. I mean, um, yeah, I look at life like if I can have an impact on a single person, then that's a wonderful thing. So um, anytime I hear where something that this guy has to say has made an impact on another person, it's really uh, not only personal, but just lets me know that humanity is a pretty cool thing. Um, as far as um, our relationship and what David does now, David and I have done a lot of work together on um, on a lot of different issues, um, death penalty being one of them, criminal justice, uh, focusing academics and professionals both uh, within the criminal justice system and, so and social work uh, environments um, on many of the issues that we've gone through. Um, our relationship will just continue to grow, and, um, you know, we're... we're best friends i mean we talk about everything so i don't see that going anywhere but up you guys are great you've been listening to an inside look at mental health i'm your host john Aberly. i have had the pleasure and the privilege of having dave kaczynski on today he is the brother of ted kaczynski better known as the unabomber had get we've had gary wright on who is a close friend of dave's he was victim number 12 david is there a quick website you can give us for someone to go on and look sure www.nyadp.org Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Take care, Dave. Take care, Gary. What a show. Wouldn't you say, Gary? Or guess say, JT? Absolutely. Excellent show. We're going to roll out. You're listening to 1520 WCHE, Westchester. reaches into where I cannot hide Setting my feet upon the road